Now, this is a, a very, very common experience that I have uh, as a Christian, and maybe you can relate. It, it's holding two things in my mind. On the one hand, I know Jesus died for me, and my sins are forgiven, and so I feel gratitude. And on the other hand, I'm holding in my mind all the many ways that I have seemed to let God down, that I haven't met God's standards for me, and, and I feel disappointment. So, that mix of gratitude and disappointment causes kind of this dissonance in me that is difficult to, uh, to handle. Now, I know that I can't obey enough to become a child of God, right? You don't earn sonship in a family, right? But, but I also know that if I'm a child of God, I do have to obey and honor my father, And that's what this text is about, is dealing with that tension. It's about honoring God as Father. If we still have so much sin in our hearts that maybe you can relate to what I was just saying, because that's a sin problem, which is this side of the resurrection problem, if, if that's true of us, then how can we actually honor God as Father? How can we actually walk not to earn sonship, but in light of our sonship. How can we honor our Father? That's what we're going to explore from the text that Annie read for us today, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, and we'll do it in three points, uh, as usual. And because Jesus himself made it clear that all the law and the prophets are about him, we're just going to shamelessly interpret this text through the lens of Jesus Christ as we're supposed to do. So, three points today are the faithful son, the perfect sacrifice, and the open door. Now, let's jump right into number one, the faithful son. Now, you know, if we're going to talk about the faithful son, we're going to be talking about Jesus, the son of God, right? The perfect son. But first, we're going to talk about Israel and Malachi's day, who are the unfaithful son. The reason I call Israel a son is because back in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, I think verse 22, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And so now we read this again, read verse 6 again with a different light. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm your father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of armies to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? That's the charge. See, last week we saw how Israel was putting God on trial. This week, God's flipping it around a little bit, and he's bringing a charge against his people. And the charge is this, you're despising my name. It's a very serious charge. God's name is like a bucket that contains all that he is and all that he has done. That's what we mean by name. I mean, I've used the illustration before, but when Johnny Cash was alive on this earth and stood up and said, hello, I'm Johnny Cash, and everyone freaked out, it's because they knew his name. They knew what he stood for. They knew what he meant to them. And so by despising God's name, by bringing these half-hearted sacrifices, Israel is saying, God's not that great. And frankly, he hasn't done that much for us. 
That's what it means to despise God's name. They didn't do it with their words, but they did it with their actions. In fact, this, uh, this is the story of God's son treating him as theoretical. Now, if you have, um, well, you were all teenagers, right? Um, well, those of you above the age of teenagers are all teenagers. Uh, at some point, I'm willing to bet that you treated your parents as theoretical too. I know I did. We rebel, we kind of do what we want, we dismiss their authority, we don't show gratitude for how they've loved us and raised us, we, we treat them as theoretical. Well, here's why I say that Israel is treating God that way. Verse 8 says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Go ahead, present that to your governor. Is he going to accept it? Is he going to show you favor? See, 50 years after Judah was taken into Babylon, that was in 586. 50 years later, Babylon was conquered by Persia. And then uh, the, the ruler's name was Cyrus the Great. And Ezra chapter 1 tells us that it was in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he gave a decree that the Jews should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And, and that's the point that we find ourselves in with Malachi. But the king of Persia did not free the people of Israel. He did not help them establish their own nation. Instead, he appointed a governor to rule the people in his place and to bring the king of Persia tribute from the people of Israel. And they had many of these governors. And in fact, since that day for the rest of the Bible and most of the rest of history, Israel has not been a self-governing nation and their land has been occupied land. But we're not going to get into that this morning. The presence, though, of Persian authority was very real. The Persian authority was so obvious that you could not ignore it in Jerusalem. They wouldn't dare to give a half-hearted sacrifice, blind, lame, and defective animals, to their human governor to take as tribute to the king of Persia but they seem to have no qualms about bringing those sacrifices to God. They knew that their well-being and existence and sustenance was in the hands of Cyrus the Great, or they thought that's where it was. But that's not where their well-being was held. God says, entreat his favor, or try entreating my favor with these things. See, we need God to lift up his face upon us, like the blessing that we do at the end of the service every week. We need him to be gracious to us, to show us favor, to be our provider, to give us peace. It's in God's hands, not Cyrus's, not the U.S. government's, not U.N. God is our provider. Yet here we find Israel doing something very relatable and treating God as the theoretical one and this local human authority as the real and important one. Now, we've got to understand, if we're going to get at this passage, that God gave Israel um, an, an animal sacrifice system. Now, I mean, it's the, part of, it's the job of every sermon to say, here's the main point of the text, and here's how it relates to you. And because of that, I get the burden and the job and the privilege today of showing how 
an eight, like thousands of year old animal sacrifice system is deeply profoundly relevant to you today and to me, but it is. So we have to understand that the animal sacrifice system that God gave his people was always meant to be a loving response to love received. That's what a sacrifice is, a loving response to love received. They were meant to give their best, not the blind, lame, defective animals, not the ones with spots that are all crippled or whatever, but their absolute best spotless animals because God withholds no good thing from them. It was meant to be an act of devotion, not an act of duty. But they had slipped into rote religious observance. Uh, We might call it churchianity here in the Bible Belt. They were worshiping God with their mouths, but withholding from him with their hearts. And what father desires half-hearted obedience like that? What father wants lip service? I, I don't remember. It was someone, someone here. I'm sorry that I don't remember this conversation. We were talking about the, um, <clears throat> the sort of old proverb, I suppose you could call it, of like, you know, if a father has two sons and says to them, um, please go uh, work in the field and, and gather the harvest today. And one son says, I'm not doing that and grumbles, but he does eventually do it. The other son says, absolutely, yes, sir, it would be my pleasure to do that, but he never does it. The question is, which son is the obedient son? The Bible would say neither. Like that's, one is just lip service and one is just duty. What God wants from us is a willing heart, a wholehearted sacrifice, a wholehearted obedience to the Father. See, God didn't need their sacrifices. That's what set apart Yahweh and Israel's religion from every other religion in the ancient Near East. I've studied a lot of these religions uh, doing some of my, uh, my writing, and they all have this in common. Their God gives them a system of sacrifice to feed them because they're hungry, to provide for them because they're lazy. That's what all of the other religions were offering. And our God comes along and says, I don't need your sacrifices. This is actually for you, not for me. In the same way that I don't need my children to unload the dishwasher. I'm perfectly capable of unloading the dishwasher. I've even done it before. (laughs) And, you know, the passage, so when we were support raising to go on missions work, we heard this a lot. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That is true. And it was used, you know, well-intentioned by people saying, don't worry, he'll provide for you. That is true. The point of the Psalm that that comes out of though is he doesn't need your sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not for him. It's for you. So what does it do? What's it for? It's so that we might rely on the blessing of God by faith rather than our own efforts. We're going to need to learn that lesson. And so we had thousands of years of a sacrifice system to teach us to rely on God by faith and not on our own efforts. We needed it so that we might practice thousands of times seeing someone else pay for our sin. We've got to get that in our bones. 
And lastly, because the sacrifices are meant to tell the story of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God. That's what the whole sacrifice system is for. That's what the book of Leviticus exists for. It's to tell the story of Jesus. And therefore, by bringing defective, half-hearted sacrifices to the temple, not only are they refusing to live by faith, saying no thank you to God's blessing, but they're also preaching a false gospel. They are misrepresenting Jesus Christ. God has ordained that his glory and honor will be most profoundly displayed through sacrifice. That's why when we were talking about 2 Corinthians 3.18 with the kids, beholding the glory of the Lord were changed into the same image. That's the gospel. It's beholding Christ crucified and resurrected. That's where the glory is most profoundly seen. It's the sacrifice. So when we offer half-hearted lives to God, we're accusing him of being inglorious and of not loving us. We're saying, my half-hearted life is because you must have only loved me half-heartedly. And we're misrepresenting Jesus. And it's a serious thing. After 2,000 years of patience on God's part with his son Israel, Israel has by this point, entirely disqualified themselves beyond question for playing that role. See, God intended his son to show the world that he is Yahweh when he brings his son out of Egypt and when he passes his son through the waters, says, I am the Lord. God intended his son by giving him the law to beautifully display what God is like to the delight of the world. God had intended his son to be the one to offer salvation to the whole world, to the nations. And Israel failed and failed and failed and failed on every account. So the father sent down his heavenly son, his eternal son, the perfect son, to live the life of obedience and love and honor that we never could have. So Jesus is the true and better Israel. Israel, not only their sacrifices tell the story of Jesus, the whole story of Israel is like a mirror reflecting Jesus. That's why Jesus went down to Egypt with his family. The gospel says, to fulfill the scripture that said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. See, Israel went down to Egypt. Jesus went down to Egypt. Israel passed through the Red Sea. Jesus was baptized in the waters. Israel went into the promised land for 40, or wilderness for 40 years. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. You see, Jesus is the perfect son. So he had to live the life of the perfect son. But at every point where Israel failed, Jesus did it perfectly. In John 14, 30, Jesus is about to be betrayed by his brother, his friend, who is controlled by Satan. And here's what he says to his friends. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's what the perfect son does. Israel treated God as theoretical. Jesus lived what we call Coram Deo, before the face of God. His entire 
identity and life orientation was as if he was standing in the presence of the Father at all times. He never treated God as theoretical. Now, there, when, when we moved to Scotland, um, 2019, the first Sunday, uh, just trying to, like, we're, we're the new people at this church, and we're trying to, you know, navigate the space, get to know people. There was this old Scottish man sitting behind me, and I introduced myself and asked his name, and I didn't understand anything he said after that point. Just thick, thick Scottish brogue. Um, turns out his name was Murdo which isn't a name that most of us are familiar with, and he, and he pronounced it in a way that I can't pronounce it, but uh, Murdo Morrison. I got to know him over two years, and I got to hear him pray a lot. Probably 60 times, at least, I heard Murdo pray. And every single prayer that Murdo Morrison uttered began with this uh, phrase, Merciful Father, Merciful Father. And one day I said, Murdo, why do you pray like that? And he said, that's how I know God. He has been so merciful to me. He has been a father to me. What do you know God as? How has he interacted with you? Do you live before the face of God? Knowing he's your merciful father, knowing he's the God who sees that he's God Almighty, that he's the Lord of hosts? Or do we feel that he is theoretical? In the entire Old Testament, no one calls God Father. Not one. Now you get it once in Exodus, right? Israel's my firstborn son. And you get it here in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament that the whole nation is addressed as like toward God as father, but no individual person calls God father. But in John's gospel alone, Jesus calls God his father 113 times. It's his preferred way of speaking to God and about God. Jesus' whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that he's sent by the Father to do the Father's will. That's what keeps him going. It's how he explains himself. It's how he taught his disciples to explain Jesus. So we can make no mistake about it. There's just one son who has perfectly honored the Father. And if we are to honor God as Father, it can only be through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a lot wrapped up in that, but part of that is we can't even know God as Father except through Jesus Christ, which means the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc., is a Christian privilege. Not everyone can just pray the Lord's Prayer with full integrity. It's only through Christ, if he has made God your father. I said earlier that no one in the Old Testament ever called God father, but after Jesus died and rose again and was mistaken for a gardener by Mary in the garden, Mary Magdalene, of all people, received this tremendous privilege 
for the first time in human history. Jesus said to her, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. To my God and to your God. Do you know how dignifying that is? We have all turned our back on God. But through Jesus, he says, I'm making him your father now. He makes us his brothers and sisters. Let me end this point uh, by reading from Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you see what he's saying? You and I can rightly honor God as Father. We can know him as Father through Jesus, the source of salvation, the perfect Son who reveres and honors the Father where we have failed. We actually can do it. So praise God for sending the faithful Son to live the life that we could not live. Praise God. That's the perfect Son. Uh, Point number two is the perfect sacrifice. Now, we touched on sacrifice a little bit. We're going to go a little bit deeper. In Malachi's day, of course, they were meant to bring um, the best of their flock to the temple. And what Malachi 1, 6 through 14 is explaining is essentially the people are bringing, uh, they have the good sheep, they have the good cattle, etc. But they're, they're saving it because you know, it, it can bring some monetary comfort to them. It can kind of pad the bank account. It can provide for them during a hard season. So they bring their second best or maybe their worst, and they bring it to the temple. Now, big open doors at the front of the temple to the courtyard to invite these people in with their sacrifices. And the priests are standing there at the doors of the temple. And as people bring their sacrifices up, the priests are going, yeah, that looks great. Come on in. Nice sheep, come on in. Yeah, that'll do just fine. That's fine. So when they say, how have we despised your name, God? He says to them, by saying that you can profane my table with these blemished sacrifices. He's actually indicting the priests, even though the people are the ones bringing the sacrifices. So why, you know, they, he, he brings, they're supposed to bring their best, uh, their best breeding stock, really, like the best kind of specimen that would ensure the best um, flock in years to come. In other words, they're, they're kind of taking their nest egg, and they're meant to bring that to God. Um, but what did those sacrifices, what were they supposed to do for them? That's what I'm trying to get at. What, what, what were they supposed to accomplish, the sacrifices? Well, they were actually just arrows, not like bow and arrow arrows, I suppose. Pointer arrows, right? They pointed to a better sacrifice. The sheep and the goats and the bulls and the pigeons and all of those things, they did not actually purchase forgiveness. Did you know that? They don't purchase your forgiveness. They don't redeem people. They don't justify sinners. 
The New Testament tells us that God was pleased in those times to be patient with them, to pass over the sins until the true sacrifice came, Jesus. That's why John the Baptist exclaims when he sees his cousin Jesus coming down toward him, behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' sacrifice is not telling a story. It's not a shadow of reality. It's not an arrow pointing to something better. It's the real McCoy. It's the thing. It's the reality. It's the thing casting the shadow back into the Old Testament. So behold the Lamb of God who actually does take away the sins of the world. Every single sacrifice There must have been millions. From Abel in Genesis chapter 4 all the way up through the time of Jesus was just pointing to Jesus. That was the entire point. Jesus was not only the faithful son, he was the perfect sacrifice. And so Israel's blind and lame and defective offerings were preaching a false gospel because they were misrepresenting the spotless lamb of God. No half-hearted sacrifice could accurately tell the story of Jesus' wholehearted sacrifice. You know, he went to the cross with his whole heart. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as if he were murdered. And on some sense, that's true. But in another sense, in John's gospel, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's a wholehearted sacrifice. That's not duty, that's devotion. That's the son we need. That's the sacrifice we need. Jesus' sacrifice actually accomplished something. That's why he shouted one Greek word from the cross before he died to Telestai. It is finished. Not it's coming. Every other sacrifice said it's coming. Jesus said it's finished. And with that one word, he brought to an end the thousands-year-long animal sacrifice system. No more. It's gone. It's done. In Hebrews 10, we read this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now I want to share with you something that I learned from uh, my preaching professor. So not original, but true, biblical, and wonderful. All right, so we have an incredible amount of detail in the Old Testament for what the temple looked like. We know uh, what colors the curtains were made out of. We know what the floors, walls, and ceilings were made out of. And we know all the furniture in the temple. We've got tables and lamps and columns and curtains and doors. We know all of this. You know what piece of furniture was not in the temple? A chair. Because the priest had to stand constantly 
offering sacrifices again and again and again, standing to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and standing for the sacrifice of, for unintentional sin and standing to offer sacrifices for himself so that he could be qualified to offer sacrifices for other people. There were sacrifices in the morning. There were sacrifices in the evening, day after day after day, month after month, year after year for thousands of years because the sacrifices didn't accomplish anything. They pointed to something until the son came and he died. And after that sacrifice, he sat down because it's done. It's done. So what did the perfect sacrifice of the faithful son accomplish for you? (laughs) Everything. There's nothing more for you to do. Not out of duty. He made you a son. He made you a daughter. You get to call God father and there's nothing between you anymore. All that's left for us to do is to love him back. Number three is the open door. Look with me at verse 10 in Malachi 1. The Lord says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Again, does God need our sacrifices? No. He says, I'd rather you shut the doors. No more sacrifices. Remember the priest standing at the open door to the courtyard? Shut them, priest. I don't want these half-hearted sacrifices anymore. Now, this is a message that God's people, including us, have always been very slow to understand. Here's what Samuel said half a millennia earlier. When King Saul thought that he could um, appease God with a big sacrifice after he had obeyed half-heartedly, for Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Here it is again from Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my hearts. That's telling the story of the perfect son. Hebrews quotes that about Jesus and says it was always about Jesus. He doesn't need our sheep. He doesn't need our goats. He doesn't need our cows. He doesn't need our pristine Christian life and all the check boxes we want to check off to say, I've done my duty. He wants you. A loving response to love received. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God is inviting us to present our whole selves, everything about us, as a living sacrifice, not duty, but devotion, a loving response to love received. And the reason I say that is because Paul begins it. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of what? The mercies of God. He he doesn't come and say, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice so that God may show mercy on you. He says God has shown mercy on you because of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, on that basis, offer yourselves up to God. You can trust him. God was willing to shut the temple rather than receive half-hearted sacrifices. But what did he do? when he received the wholehearted sacrifice of the perfect son. He tore the temple curtain in two, didn't he? The curtain that separated us, normal people, from the presence of God, the holy of holies, where the mercy seat is, is torn in two. Everything that prevented us from offering an acceptable sacrifice, torn. Because now we can offer an acceptable sacrifice in the name of Jesus. Everything that prevented us from coming fully into the presence of God, torn in two. The door is wide open now. If you receive the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, then not only is the temple open to you, so to speak, but you are invited in Jesus' name into the very holy of holies and the presence of the Father. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, not fall short of the moral standards of God, not fall short of the expectations of God, but the glory, the glow, the dazzling beauty of God is what we have failed and still fail daily to live up to. But you actually can live a life of beauty and integrity, the life that all of us actually want to live deep down. That is possible. You can honor your father only by relying on Jesus to be everything you can't be. If you believe on him, then his perfect life of obedience is credited to you. And all that practice of seeing a sacrifice die instead of you for your sins pays off. You get his obedience. He pays for the sin that you can't pay for, and he supplies the power to obey when you're too weak. He will do that. And then he, the perfect son, he gives you his spirit of adoption. That's what Paul calls him, I think, in Romans 8. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, not only are we invited into the temple, we become a temple. And we become sons of God and cry, Abba, Father. We can actually know him as Father. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table now.
Merciful Father, you have been good to us. Lord Jesus, you have been wholehearted in your love of the Father, and you have loved us to the end, and you have not lost one that the Father has given into your hand. Holy Spirit, you pray for us when we don't even have words. And you search the mind of God. And you give us the mind of Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you. And we praise you. Amen.